The second lesson is written in the fourth chapter of the first epistle to Timothy, beginning with the first verse. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will renounce the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared with a hot iron. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, provided it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by God's word and by prayer. If you put these instructions before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with profane myths and old wives' tales. Train yourself in godliness, for while physical training is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and struggle, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. These are the things you must insist on and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I arrive, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhorting, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Put these things into practice. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Continue in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. In 1 Timothy, as it was just read for us by Devin this morning, we are invited uh, to a life of godliness. Now, this word in the New Testament for godliness only shows up 15 times in the whole New Testament, but nine of those times are right here in 1 Timothy. And not only that, but in the pastoral epistles that make up First and Second Timothy and Titus, uh, it shows up 13 times. So it's central to what it means to be, as Paul is teaching us, and you may recall from last week and the week before, here in this letter to the church and to young Timothy, that this is how the household of faith should live. And it's shaped by this idea of godliness. Now, scholar Paul Carl, excuse me, Carter points out that defining this, as he talks about uh, uh, exegeting and coming to an understanding of what's going on in chapter 4, is a whole lot easier uh, than the challenging text we tackled in chapters 2 and 3 last week. In fact, some he points out call chapter 2 of 1 Timothy one of the hardest chapters to understand in all of Scripture. Uh, 
But I couldn't help after reading his thoughts about that and thinking about godliness, think of that famous quote by Mark Twain. It's not the parts of scripture I don't understand that give me trouble. It's the parts I do understand. And I think the call and the challenge to live a life of godliness, well, I think we'll see is crystal clear here in this text, isn't all that easy. So what picture do you have of someone who reflects godliness? I certainly can think of adjectives that maybe unbelievers or those who are not in the household of faith might use to describe godliness. And we've looked at some of those memes the last couple of weeks that reflect some of that, right? I can certainly think of all kinds of adjectives that maybe uh, we would celebrate. So just for fun, for a moment, let's attack... that's a little bit Freudian there. I didn't say, mean to say attack, but that's what we're going to do. So there you go. Uh, with these two stereotypes that we'll examine together. The first stereotype we'll take a look at is, you know, the idea of being spiritual but not religious. Let's call this the hippie, all right? And those of you who are beloved uh, in the hippie style, this is not an attack on your style, okay? But let's, let's call our spiritual, not religious stereotype a hippie. You know what I'm talking about. One with nature, enjoying the things of this world, because I can do whatever I want with or to my body, right? Doesn't matter what I take in with my eyes on Netflix, or what I do on a Friday night out with friends, because that's just all the physical world. And I'm, I'm above that. I'm spiritual and not religious. And oftentimes when folk tell me that, it's to show me that they are on a higher plane than I am, trapped in these religious trappings of the church, right? So that's one stereotype. Let's look at another. I'll call this one the monk, all right? Now, you know what the monk is like. This is the uh, spiritual person who refrains from everything. Uh, They like to tell you what they don't eat, right? They like to tell you how, maybe how little screen time they have. Or that they refrain from alcohol, They sometimes get described as prudes. They always get up at 4 a.m. and do at least three hours of Bible study, right, before the sun gets up. They often get called boring. Now, the monk or the hippie, they capture some things about life that are good. Spending diligent time and discipline in God's word, like uh, the, the monk stereotype might, is great. Enjoying the life that God has given with joy from the hippie is a good thing. But when we live in these extremes, 
And we, we make the Bible out or we make our faith out to live in this kind of dualistic understanding of the world of spiritual over here and the physical over there. Then these stereotypes stumble right into the type of heresies that the Apostle Paul is warning the church about. First Timothy. Let me share more what I mean. Many scholars believe that Paul is beginning to address an issue called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was something that really became a battle in the second century in the life of the church, but uh, there's plenty of evidence that it began to take root with its false teachings right here in the early church. You hear about it in 1 Timothy chapter 4 with the encouraging people not to marry or to refrain from certain foods. You see, the Gnostics believed in that dualistic order. They thought the world was separated into spiritual and physical. And in that separation, they called the physical bad and the spiritual good. And because they did that, some in the Gnostics would become what we call today, or what I'm stereotyping, as hippies. I can do whatever I want in this carnal Greco-Roman world. Uh, I can have fun with my body. I can eat whatever I want. I can participate in whatever I want. Because none of that really matters. The physical doesn't matter. It's just my spiritual gnosis, my spiritual knowledge that matters. Turns out, our spiritual, not religious hippies been around a long time. But so is the monk. Because the other flip side of that is, well, well, since the physical is bad, I become an ascetic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grit my teeth and, and white knuckle it on my way to heaven. And I'm going to follow every rule. I'm going to just to be safe. I'm going to refrain from everything that I can possibly think of. The Gnostics who believed this would uh, beat themselves. And so those ascetics who said that since the body's bad, I'm going to avoid it and only focus on the spiritual and cloister myself away from the rest of the world. Neither one of these pictures of quote-unquote godliness are the picture that the Apostle Paul paints for us in 1 Timothy 4. In fact, he calls them heresies and false teaching. And what seemed to be something that we deal with, the monks or the hippies, are actually something that we've been dealing with since the beginning of the church. In fact, I thought it was fascinating this week. I was listening to a sports podcast uh, about my favorite football team. And believe me, it was in no way a a Christian or spiritual uh, radio station on this podcast that was being broadcast. And it caught my ear, having been in this text this week, when one of the broadcasters Uh, pointed out and talking about an issue facing the sports world, isn't it interesting how everyone is always trying to show how much they are morally superior to the other person? Boy, that sounded 
like one of these godliness characters to me right away. We continue to deal with this one-upmanship. Well, what adjectives would you use? What would the world around us use in describing a godly Christian? Well, let's ask the question, what does the Word of God use? And you get into verses 11 and 12 in this chapter, and you begin to hear descriptors and adjectives like love, faith, and purity. You see, instead of retreating from the world that God created and called good, like a cloistered monk, or calling every way that we treat that world good and living a wild or permissive lifestyle just because we want to and calling that good or I like how one pastor called it in teaching on this text he said it's kind of like living your life with a theme song of Frank Sinatra's I did it my way which is he would go on to say uh, a great theme song for the road to hell friends The way of Jesus is different than the path of these beloved stereotypes of hippie or monk. But let's be honest, somewhere on that spectrum, you and I tend to fall into one or the other. And we tend to uh, want to save ourselves using one of those two means. And neither one of them will get us to a place that we want to go. Only, as verse 10 will highlight, can we get there, not from some dualistic understanding of the world, but from the way that Jesus has ordained, the way of Christ, through his salvation won for us on the cross. And so we shouldn't be surprised, as Paul reminds us, that along the way, there'll be false teachings that will tickle our ears and our personal desires. And so as scholars I read and listened to suggested this refraining from marriage or certain foods that precursored or maybe was the beginning of Gnosticism, we can see continues a struggle that we still face today, 2,000 years later. Our God calls His creation good. In fact, He calls us to love the world, that same world that hates Jesus. The same world that rejects Jesus, He calls us to love because He died for it and for us. No, we don't retreat, we engage. But we don't engage in the means that the world invites us to. Instead, of being a monk or a hippie, we're called to this life of godliness. And as one scholar put it, it's not external. It's the inner power to live a godly life made possible by Jesus. But let me add, just because it is internal doesn't mean that we don't live it out externally. 
This isn't the means of saving yourself or your, uh, earning your salvation. This is a means of living into the gift of faith given to us. And so we're going to unpack as we get there these words of God. Of what does it mean to have this gift of faith? What does it mean to live with love? What does it mean to live with purity? But I think if we go towards the end of this chapter into verse 15... I think it helps frame the rest of the chapter for us. In verse 15, it invites us to be immersed in God's word. Immersed in God's word. That when we're immersed in God's word, then we'll be able to do the two things this text is telling us overall, as John Stott puts us, that it's telling us about what the false teaching is and how to avoid it. And how to live differently. I like how the great er, American preacher Jonathan Edwards put it. Jonathan Edwards lived in a century uh, long before ours, but faithfully preached the gospel. And he said this, I'm resolved never to do anything which I can be, let me say that again. I'm resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. The how we live in that last hour is how we should live in every hour to the glory of God. To live in godliness shaped by what the word here is shaping for us. And all of this, remember verse 10 says, is not by human means. But let me hit pause for a moment and come back to the question that we've been asking about this text, how not to read the Bible. Let's use verse 10 as an example of that. For those who come to the scriptures looking for an escape clause so that they can do what they want, verse 10 is a perfect example of misinterpreting the Bible. Because sometimes people will take that one verse, verse 10, that tells us that Christ died for all. He came to die and gave salvation to all. And then it goes on to say, especially for those who believe. So if you take a verse out of context, out of the chapter, and by itself, and you want to live like the rest of this world in a kind of a pluralistic society, then you would say, oh, look. I've got an escape clause. I don't have to follow Jesus. It's just especially for those who believe. But Jesus died and saved everyone. So I I, I don't have to tell someone of another faith that they need Jesus. If you do that, then you'll be misinterpreting this text. You'll be pulling it out. Like we've said in never reading just one verse alone, you'll be pulling out, you can't even get that interpretation if you read the whole of this chapter, since we're called to a life of godliness in Christ Jesus. Much less the rest of the whole of Scripture that command us to one way, which is Christ Jesus. So, how we read the Bible matters. And it matters because it's a life. In Christ. Now let's fast forward to the next couple of verses and see how that life in Christ looks like in the practical world. Remember, we've already heard in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to live out our faith in our family, to live out our faith 
with our governing authorities, to live out our faith in the household of faith in the church. And now he gets specific for Timothy and for all of God's people. He says godliness is expressed, you can see this in verse 11 and 12, in speech, in life's conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Now you all know folks that you've worked with who are brilliant, whose abrasive speech didn't allow their brilliance to bless others, right? You all know and can Google search pastors whose life conduct didn't match the sermons they preach. Now all of us fall short of the glory of God, but our Strive is to live a godly life, our life adorning the gospel so that how we live, and that's not just for pastors, that's for all of us, because the world loves to point out when we're inconsistent. Of course, grace is an enigma to them, and knowing that we all need grace is hard to understand, but it means that our conduct in life is a part of properly sharing the gospel. And then, of course, love. Love is essential to the Christian life. Essential to how we treat others. To love the world that may even hate us. Because God so loved the world. Paul says in Corinthians, you'll recall, that a faith without love is like a gang, a, a, you know, a, a glinging clong of a loud noise that just hurts the ear. Our faith is to be expressed in love. That's why we work in, with partners like Trinity Hope to fill the heart and the belly with love. And then, of course, that all comes because of the gift of faith. And it gets expressed, yes, indeed, he says here, in purity. Not as the extremes would teach us, but as God's word would define for us our identity and our, how we're to live in our relationships and what we input and output. Indeed, purity. How we live matters. That includes the life of the church in verse 13. For the church is to include public reading of scripture and preaching and teaching. And guess what? We still do all of that today. And the use of the picture that Paul gives us here for how to do all this is the example of training the body. It's where the word he uses is where we get the word gymnasium. Now at this time of year, uh, where many of us are enthusiastic about bodily training. And about this time of the month in January, we start, some of us start to lose ambitions, right? We see those uh, New Year's resolutions starting to fade. But bodily training is, as the scripture says, it's not bad. In fact, it's got value. The Apostle Paul says so here. But he uses something as a a greater value, eternal value, is a spiritual training. Not that, again, he's avoiding that dualism. He's not saying bodily training isn't good. He's saying that there's something that's along with that even better. And that's spiritual training. So I like how Eugene Peterson puts it in a long obedience in the same direction. 
He writes, in our kind of culture, anything, even news about God can be sold if it's packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There's a great market, he writes, for religious experience. I'll interrupt there and say, we wouldn't call it religious experience today. Now, we'd, since he wrote that, today we'd call it something different like uh, self-improvement or personal growth or FOMO, fear of mis- missing out, right? In our world, he writes, there's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness, or what we hear in this text called godliness. And that's going along obedience in the same direction. And that same direction is revealed, again, back to verse 15, when we are immersed in God's word. You hear me say all the time, are you being read by the word and not just reading the word? What I mean by that is asking the right questions. This is not to say that you can ask a a, a wrong question. You can bring all of your questions to the Lord. But what I'm saying is, is instead of asking, how does the Bible fit into my world and that I live in? We should ask the question, how does God's word reshape my world? God's word shapes us and guides us. From the moral relativity of the hippie to the extreme legalism of the monk, we are called to avoid those heresies and follow the way of Jesus. John Stott talks about the... uh, the Bishop of Canterbury, some 25 years ago now, bringing up a discussion on moral relativity in the House of Lords. I don't know if that same conversation would happen still today, but he used the example, the Bishop of Canterbury did, of football. Now, I'm not talking about the football we'll celebrate next week, right? But he said, you know, the rules of football game you all celebrate because it helps us really be freed to live. In the same manner, God's word frees us to live. Of course, we know how quickly and fickle our heart is. Like next week when you watch the Super Bowl and you hear the announcer say, wow, they're really, the refs say, wow, they're really letting them play. It really makes you happy. Oh yeah, not a lot of flags. It's great. Right up until the point that the ref doesn't call an obvious foul on your team, right? And then you start yelling at the television. Well, at least I do. Our hearts are fickle. We want to be in control either as the hippie or the monk, but we need to follow the way of Jesus, a life of godliness, where God designs what is right and good. And how do we do that? We become immersed in God's word. We get plugged in literally into God's word. How are you being immersed in God's word in your daily life? Chuck Swindoll sometimes calls the Holy Spirit the great transformer. What he means by that is he uses the example of electricity. When the electricity comes from the electricity plant, there's this huge high voltage coming out. And if we didn't have transformers, it would blow up our homes and our devices, right? A transformer brings it to us in a way that we can handle the Holy Spirit 
As our brother in Christ who went to be with the Lord in 2020 used to pray with us every morning here on Sundays at Faith, Mike Peters, he would, he would ask the Holy Spirit to convict, convert, and consecrate us. The Holy Spirit transforms us. He brings that word to us and helps us believe and open our hearts. And so I invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to lead you into that life of love and faith and purity. Let, it, let him shape your speech and conduct and love. Let him do that as you are immersed in the word. And don't be surprised if the long walk of obedience sometimes smells like that gymnasium. It won't always be easy, but the Lord God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will be with us. And as verse 16 reminds us, it's not that we're saving ourselves, but that in following this way of Jesus, this life of godliness, we won't just save ourselves, we'll be a light to the world around us. And others will come to this saving faith because of the way that you follow Jesus. So may we all be immersed in God's word. And by the power of his redeeming grace, live a life of godliness. Amen.